I heard Peter in, in at the Transform Local Government Conference in Greenville, South Carolina in June of 2008 for the first time. And my reaction was just that, that this was an amazing approach to what we weren't calling community engagement at the time, but we do now. And part of it's because of Peter Block, but the work that we have done to try to improve the community, try to really improve relationships and the interactions between our, our community members and in a town gown community where we have a large number of long-term residents, the approach that we had traditionally taken were standard approaches to working with community members and Peter Block really talked about the importance of the invitation. And I know I'm sure we'll talk about all the elements as we go through here, but just really a fundamentally different approach that made me start thinking more about a community engagement model, as opposed to just a neighborhood service model or a planning model that we have traditionally used. Community conversations happen all the time in various venues, but local government managers cannot take them for granted. When community engagement is waning, it is important to think about ways to bring people together. Our guest today, Tom Fountain, Municipal Manager in State College, Pennsylvania, knows something about the challenges of community engagement. We discovered we share an appreciation for Peter Block, who wrote the book, Community, the Structure of Belonging. I invited him on to PCC Local Time to talk about the six conversations that Peter Block outlines for community conversation. These include invitation, possibility, ownership, dissent, commitment, and gifts. What was it about Peter Block's methodology of asking questions that caught our attention and remained with us over the years? We cover quite a bit of ground. Tom is forthcoming not only with the work that has evolved from Peter Block's ideas, but also his weaknesses when it comes to implementing some of Block's ideas. Perhaps it is the challenge that makes this work so compelling. If it was easy, we would not take the time to uncover what it means to engage community, both inside our organizations and in the surrounding communities with whom we partner and serve. I start by asking Tom, what struck him? about the ideas that Peter Block expressed so many years ago when he heard him speak at a conference. How did he see these ideas fitting in with the world of local government? Let's get started. One thing is I prepared that I am I'm reminded of frequently, but this really drove it right between my eyes, is how disengaged we have become in since 2020, the beginning of 2020. So much of the work that we do around community engagement, we're still doing a lot of community engagement work, but it is, has such a different look and feel. And to some extent, some disengagement. There's, we've continued to have regular meetings with neighborhood association leaders. We've struggled to connect with students during the pandemic here, but but it's just different. And so a lot of the things that we probably would talk about it. They're like distant memories, but I'm going to, I'm going to do my best to bring them back here. I think that this is part of the reason why this particular theme interests me because we are shifting. Mm -hmm. We are, we don't have the answers to how it's going to look for having to redesign. And I think that Peter Block offers us something that's 
different from the traditional survey and small focus groups, which right. we have relied upon in a structured way. But how this might look, I think, is really up to all of us to rethink in a hybrid world. But let's start at the beginning. Think back to, I remember my first meeting with Peter Block. It was a huge room. So you think about that. You go into a big conference hall, 500 people or more. I don't know, it was big. It was up in Boston. I remember thinking, check out, you're doing other things. And then he comes on and he asks these questions and makes these statements and it just got my attention. And I will, I will, I have some notes here from that day. And he really stopped me cold, just his approach. And I want to know if you had a similar reaction when you heard him the first time. I absolutely would agree with that. I heard Peter in, in at the Transform Local Government Conference in Greenville, South Carolina in June of 2008 for the first time. And my reaction was just that, that this was an amazing approach to what we weren't calling community engagement at the time, but we do now. And part of it's because of Peter Block, but the work that we have done to try to improve the community, try to really improve relationships and the interactions between our, our community members and in a town gown community where we have a large number of long-term residents and we have a large number of student residents and the student residents live here for four, five, six years, and then they move on, but there's always a new group replacing them. And so we're constantly here in state college going through that process of re-engaging and working with our community members to improve the quality of life and improve the neighborhoods here in state college. And the approach that we had traditionally taken were standard approaches to working with community members and Peter Block really talked about so many different ideas about the importance of the invitation. And I know I'm sure we'll talk about all the elements as we go through here, but just really a fundamentally different approach that made me start thinking immediately about more about a community engagement model, as opposed to just a neighborhood service model or a planning model that we have traditionally used. And just, I came back to state college and we started talking about how we were going to do that. And, and we have done a lot of work around some of the themes that Peter Block talked about that day. I just love that. And I'm really excited to, to dig into this. I really do think he shifted the way we think about our role. And it's not something that maybe you would learn in your <laughs> master's coursework on public administration. It's something that really comes from the experience of working as a practitioner in the field and figuring out that there's something else here that's got to happen. It is the work of local government engagement. So he has six conversations that it's a, what I would call a community model. And he thinks that we can help people with all six of these conversations in different ways inside and also within the communities at large. That the first, the first conversation around invitation, as you mentioned, he says that leading is convening. And specifically the task of leadership is convening people who are not used to talking to one another. And so I'd like to ask you, what do you think about that? What comes to your mind when you hear that? I think it's an example of, of a traditional way that we would do things where we would identify the problem and then get the people in the room that we thought could help solve the problem. And I think the whole notion of leading 
through that invitation to just bring people together that may not all agree, that may have different perspectives and structuring that, uh, that conversation around trying to come up with possibilities, if you will, of what we could do to solve these problems. So it was the really, I think a different mindset than we had in the past of inviting people to come to these conversations and convening the people who don't talk to one another. The, the, again, and I don't mean to beat this to death, but certainly the college students that are up till three, four o'clock in the morning and doing living on one time zone. And then their next door neighbors that have kids that have to get up to go to school in the morning, they sometimes don't communicate well together. And so this whole thought of the invitation to get those people together who don't normally talk to each other and begin to have conversations with, without judgment, if you will, where we could begin to explore what, what possibilities exist to improve that quality of life and solve problems in those neighborhoods. Yeah. Yes. And I think his, the power is the actual question. And we've talked about that back and forth in our exchange on emails that, that there is a, there, that's his method is to ask questions. I do think that when you bring people together and I've heard it said that a, a municipal manager can be like a conductor. And as you mentioned, figuring out who needs to be in the room, but what if they don't know each other? And so starting out with some kind of question, you know, what another one I think is that what was the dream you came here with? What is it that brought you here or give us, a, help us understand what brought you here? And I think in a hybrid workplace, it is even more important. I've been trying to up my skills because I know this is an area that I'm going to need to have lots in my back pocket because you've got people together and you can't like do the face-to-face. You've got to have a few questions or ways to get them to think about this moment. I I wonder if you could say even within your organization, if you have some thoughts about, you'd mentioned maybe there's younger staff coming up that think differently about those who've been around a long time that like us, (laughs) that maybe are not as comfortable in the online environment. Absolutely. And I think we're seeing that increasingly over the last two and a half years where we have some staff that here that are very comfortable in, in a hybrid or even a remote work environment and others that are not as comfortable. And of course, one of the struggles that we have in our office is that we're a public service organization. And sometimes it's not easy to deliver public services if you're not physically present. And so we, we're still working through some of those questions, some of those processes as we come out of, uh, of the past two and a half years, the disrupted work cycle and a lot of remote work, a lot of hybrid work, sometimes in the office, and then a week later back at home working again. And so we're still trying to work through some of those, or- those organizational questions, but there is no doubt that what we're seeing is that employees increasingly come with different mindsets and different expectations about the work environment. And I think that's something that we're all going to have to adjust to going forward. It's, I don't believe that this, that this hybrid environment is ever going to go away. I think the one thing that we've all learned is that a quick meeting through Zoom or Teams or one of the other online platforms, we can convene several people from different parts of the country, different parts of the state and have a meeting quickly and at least see people on the screen. But that, that interpersonal interaction is still somewhat missing. And I think that's one of the things that we came back with from, from, with Peter Block is the need to have small group discussions. And when you're having these conversations to sit close together with, I think the correct metric is knees six inches apart, very specific guidance on this, 
And we, we've tried to do that in a number of cases with some success and sometimes not so successful, but we started a program around that, that in-person conversation, really. We have a program here called LION. It stands for living in one neighborhood. And so we do a lot of work to build around that theme. And so we started what we call LION chats. And we would send an invitation and we would bring people together that lived in neighborhoods or could talk about specific problems and put them in those small groups and then have those kinds of discussions. And I, it's been a while since we've done a lion chat and I, I can't sit here and tell you that I have a great example to, I wish I could, but it was very helpful at that time in bringing people together. And I think it really, if nothing else, it really started to change the relationship. It made neighbors who maybe didn't communicate with each other aware that others in the neighborhood weren't just those people that live down the street that are always playing loud music. They're real people. And we started to begin to have those conversations that really, I think, helped to improve that. And I think we've gone backwards a little bit over the past two years with that because we don't have those interpersonal reaction inter interactions right now. It is more of this video call and yeah. the, the remote meetings as opposed to those in-person meetings and the development of that interpersonal relationship. I just think there's so many important elements to what you're saying. And what is that comes to my mind, and this goes back to name of that this talk that Peter Block gave so many years ago was titled Consent Versus Mandate. And he's basically saying that in an invitation, I think we have to make explicit. We get online sometimes and we just don't remember our etiquette that way. That yeah. Invitation has to be explicit and it has to be a choice. In the hybrid world right now, everything that we know in terms of mental health, people are just having difficulty adjusting back, that the mandate may not be, may not be as powerful as the invitation where there's a choice. And that the more we can make that invitation, whether it's in the neighborhoods or whether it's in our workplace, explicit and clear that we mean it as an invitation. Things that are on my mind is what's going to be the biggest influencer of bringing us together and without losing our sense that we even need to, which is what I'm afraid of. It is that you and I can have a talk this morning. This is great. I'm conducting projects online that it's easy. It's very seductive that you can just do it this way. I couldn't agree more. I think it gives us some opportunities to bring people together. And that invitation is critically important. I think, and this is just from my personal experience, but I think one of the things that's been lacking is sometimes it's just a, a quick, can we get together on, on Zoom and have a quick conversation? And the invitation isn't as well thought through. And sometimes we get into those meetings and then we look at each other and say, okay, so what are we trying to accomplish here? I think, I think it's been, it's been difficult over the past two years. I think what's happened in our organization and the work we've done is sometimes we have gone from being focused on those communities issues and working to improve the relationships within the community to focusing on other critical and important and urgent issues like public health and social justice. And those are things that we need to focus on. Those are critical issues within the community. But what hasn't happened during that time are some of those conversations and some of those and the framing of invitations to have those conversations as effectively as we were doing pre-pandemic. And I think that's one of the things that we, our community engagement staff here will be focusing on in the next year or two as we, we begin to rebuild that. Yeah. And it's like the quality of the relationship. It's a relationship building. I think one of the other things that's happened, and I, Peter 
Block talks about it in, in the book community is a, a sense of belonging and it, it, it's the work from Putnam in social capital and bridging social capital and bonding social capital. And I will be frank, I had not read Putnam's work and was not really familiar with that, but it really resonated with me in the block work that we, and particularly in a college town, we clearly had a lot of bonding social capital. We had people who gathered together individually because they were like-minded and they tended to come together. And then we had other groups that, that also did that, but we didn't have a lot of bridging social capital. And so one of the things that we were trying to do was to create that bridging social capital where we had the ability to have conversations that would help people that maybe weren't from the same groups, didn't have totally the same interests, but had other things in common that we needed to find ways to create that bridging the social capital. I, I believe that's gotten worse in the last few years as everything in the world has become very polarized. I think we've even lost more from after Bowling Alone, which was a real eye-opening book as well ab about the lack of those community engagement opportunities that we used to have and the volunteer work and the associational things that we would do. But I think today we've almost gone to, to another extreme where we are very polarized and there's very little bonding or bridging social capital in the world generally, not just around these kinds of neighborhood issues that I've been talking about, but around virtually all of our issues. What the, There's the Putnam reference you made. What was the second one? The Putnam book, Bowling Alone, which I was drawn to primarily because Peter Block's references the work of Putnam in the book. And I think that was a sub-theme within the Peter Block work, or it has been anyway, at least that's the way I've interpreted it, about the need to develop that bridging social capital within a community to to take on those challenging problems, those very difficult problems that we that we need to solve in a different way in terms of asking the questions right and going through these various community building processes that Peter Block described. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. I'll put those references in the show notes for those who are interested. But it does, it makes me think again in, in the invitation that we step out of the role of the manager and more into the role of facilitator and a facilitator, right. any of that work is about intention. And this is, are we going to frame the conversation so that we can help people come together? Absolutely. The convening of the conversation is critical. If it's not convened correctly, we're not going to have a productive conversation. We're not going to have a successful conversation. Yeah. So we've been talking about the first conversation around invitation. The second one is possibility. And one of my favorite Peter Block quotes is, if it is achievable, it's not a possibility. That is a goal. And I really love this because I see this in my work, and I know you have as well, that what can start as a conversation, and people think, oh, who ever thought of that before, is where the real gold can be in terms of right. visioning. And so I'm, I would like to hear about maybe some projects that have been important to you that, that began as a conversation around possibility. Sure. And I think the whole notion of possibilities within city management, I think sometimes is hard to gather because we're so focused on process and policies and procedures and data and so forth. And that, all that is very important. And I don't think we can overlook that. But sometimes that sort of policy structure gets in the way of thinking about possibilities. And when we have these really difficult questions that we need to answer or, or at least have a conversation about, sometimes we don't always get the answers. But I think it's important to have those conversations around the possibility. In terms of infrastructure projects, 
which are sometimes so driven by that policy framework that doesn't allow for a lot of creativity or outside thinking. We've had some downtown projects here that I think we allowed those conversations around possibility to really help frame the conversation and come up with ideas about moving forward. The key to me is we haven't gotten where we think we might be able to go, which means it's still a possibility question. It's not a, yeah, here's a project. This is now a goal and a specific project and we can identify outcomes and so on and so forth. We're still talking about possibilities. If you're familiar with State College, Allen Street and the block, particularly between the campus and Beaver Avenue and State College is often closed for special events, but it's always a major undertaking. And every time we just finished the arts festival here last week, and of course the streets were closed and we had a lot of pedestrians and a lot of good energy in the community. And every time we go through that, we all look back and say, geez, wouldn't it be nice to have that on an ongoing basis? And, and then there's another group of people in the community that say, oh my gosh, that's a terrible idea. Where would we park and how would we get to stores and all this sort of stuff? So it just becomes a highly controversial topic. And we, when we did our last downtown plan, we talked about the possibility of how we might accomplish that. And we really came up with some frameworks about developing the ability to do things within the infrastructure to make it easier to close the street and have that pedestrian environment on a more regular basis, but not necessarily all the time. So that's a project that, that I think we developed that possibility thinking. And I, we can't take credit for that. We had consultants assisting with that process and we had great community engagement in that, but it's a great example of having those conversations and thinking about the possibilities. And now today in 2022, we're looking at the ability to secure some grant funds, perhaps through the infrastructure grants that are available to maybe make some of that possibility thinking actually a reality. And so we're pursuing those, those grants to try to improve that, to make it a more pedestrian friendly, bike friendly environment, but still have the ability for people to get to the locations where they need to go and be able to move ahead with that possibility. It reminds me of Barcelona. Have you been to Barcelona? I have not. But it is a wonderful city to, to look at how that might impact community. I think it's just phenomenal. And they, I'm not sure the status of it, but I've seen maps where I think they've been experimenting with areas that are just pedestrian and they've been studying the traffic flow and where that might work. Yeah. But, yeah. Europe is ahead of us on that anyway, I think, in terms of, of those kinds of, of concepts. There, there are some places in the United States where they've had some success as well doing that. But we've, in, in thinking about our possibilities in that kind of a project, we did think a little bit about some European design. So, for example, instead of having a street with curbs, we, the design is to have flush curbs so that when we close, the street is accessible and walkable and bikeable, and it, it's it's not limited by the curbing that exists on most streets. So we did steal that design from some of the European concepts. That's fantastic. Yes, I think they have these, I don't know what you call them, but it would be like a barrier to going and they lower. They just lower right. down and they rise up and lower down. Yep. That's exactly what we're looking at. These bollards that we can electronically put up and down instead of having to bring the big Jersey barriers in on trucks and take all the time and all the cost associated with closing the streets. I can't help but think about the center region council of governments as having been a possibility conversation at one time, because it's, I think that your role as a, as an anchor to a larger sort of regional approach, things that maybe other municipalities would think 
would not be possible becomes possible when you're able to work together. And I think it is as a, that regional that you become an area and it's very appealing and attractive as opposed to just state college. Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think we've seen that as when the center region was first established here, the center region council of government, state college was the, the clearly the biggest municipality and had the largest population and other municipalities have grown in that time. And state, the state college area is one of the few areas in Pennsylvania that continues to grow. And so we've seen more cooperation, I think, in terms of regional transportation planning in particular, I think the work that the center region planning office has done to help facilitate more regional bike paths, for one example, has really been helpful. So we often now, as we look at our bike paths, make sure that we have connectivity between the municipalities instead of just within state college, we're looking at how does this path connect into College Township or how does it connect into Ferguson Township or Patton Township or so on and so forth. And I think those kinds of thoughts about possibility really have been helpful. And I think even in the provision of services, things like the fire service here is a regional fire service that we all help pay for. And I think the last I heard it was this, we're the second largest uh, metropolitan area that is still served by a volunteer fire department. And it's largely because the, all of the municipalities in the center region have contributed to that fire service and helped to maintain that service as volunteer service. And it's really been a good example of cooperation, the libraries, the parks, there's so many different ways that we do a lot of that possibility thinking about what can we do to improve and enhance the quality of life for our residents. This goes back to this idea that we're redesigning our future right now. We are in a period of where we have to think about possibilities. And I had a conversation yesterday and it was about parks and the fact that parks are with a, a municipality out near Philadelphia. The parks tend to get paid less than the other departments. And we were having a conversation about the fact that over the lockdown, the pandemic, everybody was out in the parks. And I said, this is the time to make your case because the right. data is not only good. Every survey, every community survey, parks come out on top. What do people want? They want more trails. They want more bike paths. And I said, not only that, but if we are truly moving to a more hybrid society, we're going to have people in the parks more often. And the connectivity, and I know you've been thinking about this for a long time, but I'm starting to see how important connectivity is with community, that how people can get from one place to another or from one municipality to another goes right back to how can we bring people together? Yep. No, that's a great example. And here we're fortunate too, because Penn State is involved in that. So we've had a number of partnerships within the center region as well as with Penn State to enhance those parks and Penn State has just made a major commitment actually to to improve a trail connection from the downtown area in State College at the campus out through State College and Ferguson Township and just really a phenomenal project that begins to create that that additional open space path walkway uh, it, just a really exciting project. And there's so many other examples. We're working State College and College Township are continuing to work on the Thompson Woods Preserve in the Walnut Springs Park area, which are really not active recreation spaces, but with great trails, walk walking areas, and just beautiful open space that people can use. And we're continuing to work on developing improvements in that park, in that park area, even though the park's been there for a long time now, there are things that we through the years have gotten neglected and we need, we're refreshing how we manage that and thinking about new possibilities and how we can organize 
to, to really keep that, that fresh and available for the community members. To- I'm not ashamed to say this is my favorite conversation, <laughs> the possibilities conversation, but yeah, well, uh, there, there's a few more that are more difficult. And the next one that he outlines, the third conversation is ownership. Right. Uh, and he calls this the ownership versus the blame conversation. And he provides this example of when he himself was felt very vulnerable, was running a safety committee. Peter Block is out of Cincinnati. So it's a sizable city running a safety committee. At, and Norman had 20 or 30 people, but they had someone killed in the community and suddenly 140 people showed up and they wanted to know what the police was were going to do about this. Mm-hmm. And he knew right away that he had to do something. And so he split people up into small groups and he said, we're not here to talk about what the police can do. We're here to talk about what we can do to create the neighborhood we wish to live in. So again, he's framing it in a conversation that shifted the energy in the room. And I'll add to that one question that he presented at that conference I attended years ago. He said, the question is, what has been my contribution to the difficulty, which I now find myself in. Mm-hmm. So that he calls the ownership conversation, which can be, I think, a difficult conversation. You have been in these difficult conversations. You are in a place, I mean, college communities, I imagine you have a lot of conversations with other college communities about this, but what are the lessons that you have taken away from your experience with protests and in intense scrutiny over police action or inaction? Yeah, I think we're still learning the lessons, honestly. I don't know that I have a complete answer to that question. I know that we have, we've been actively engaged in these conversations for a long time, but really ramped up in 2019 here and continue today. We're in the process right now. It's a second attempt. We tried to organize this a year ago and it didn't work for a variety of reasons. One, one, the easy one to blame is the pandemic, but there were some other factors internally in terms of organizing a community conversation around social justice, racial equity, and the work that we can do. And I think one of the takeaways that I have is exactly on target with what Peter Block was talking about in Cincinnati. And that is that we all, every one of us is guilty of this. We don't look to ourselves to say, what can I do often enough? We look to say, what is so going to do? Or why didn't the police do that? Or why didn't the local government do something different to make, make sure that this kind of thing didn't happen instead of looking overall at what we can collectively do and what our own ownership is. It's that ownership versus blame concept. And I think that one of the messages that, that we have is that if we're going to continue to improve and find better ways to make our communities more diverse, more, more equitable, better places to live for everyone, more welcoming, we need to begin to think, what can I contribute to that and have those kinds of conversations. And we're hopeful that the community conversations that we are organizing here, the starting this fall now will help contribute to that work. We have a Our calendar is a little bit different here because of the academic year. So we purposely have waited until fall to have the conversation. We don't want to try to do it in the middle of the summer when some of our residents aren't necessarily here, but, and that's both long-term residents who once the academic year ends, maybe go on and do other things as well as certainly our student residents. 
and our student residents are a significant part of our community. So we wanted to have this conversation so they could be part of the conversation as well. And so we're going to do it, do it this fall. And of course, fall is a challenge in a college town like State College because of football season. And so we have limited weekends and times where there aren't other major events that would be competing. And we, this is a conversation that is so important that we need to make sure that it has the space to be able to allow people to participate and come to be involved in that, in that conversation. And I think we've, we are continuing to work through that process. There have been some of us that have been defensive probably about how things ha have happened in the community. I think there are others that are using the blame model and we're trying to say, we all need to come together and talk about what we can do. What gifts do we bring, which is another part of the conversation. I know what can we contribute and we're really, we're really hopeful that this conversation will help with that. It's uh, the challenge I think is though, that it is a large group conversation, not a small group conversation. And I think if you look purely at some of the things that we've done in the past and the Peter Block talks about small groups are often better at solving those kinds of problems or thinking about the possibility solving is not the best word to use. But in this case, because this is such a community-based conversation, we really thought it was important to allow for the large group. So we may at some point break it up into smaller group conversations, but initially we're going to start with a large group. Yeah, that's very interesting. Now, I think that maybe you're familiar with the open space technology where you have a larger room with the smaller tables where you can mm -hmm. speak as a large right. and then also on these smaller conversations. But again, going back to what we said earlier, that how you frame that event could be just purely around relationship building and that'll percolate a sense of, all right, it's okay to talk here, even if we're not sure where we're going with this, we're just going to get to know each other and maybe go back into that possibilities conversation. And I think too, and I mentioned this earlier in terms of the bonding and bridging social capital, I think this is a great conversation that is, is a great example of that. There, there are some very well-drawn opinions on issues. There are many people that agree in principle on that we need to be more welcoming and more diverse and be more inclusive and have social justice, but there are also then some dif very distinct differences in terms of how we do that. And I think that one of the key focuses is how do we bridge that difference? How do we bridge the social capital between the different groups, the different thoughts and opinions on that and begin to have a community approach and a community yeah. conversation? Yeah. Yeah. That's really wonderful. And I do think, again, this is a willingness to tolerate a little discomfort, that sort of bridge building. And, but it, it's not without its possibilities. And I think we'd mentioned just finding leaders or partners in the community, which I think can emerge out of that large group. Where is it that we find some people who really want to step up and become allies, as, as you might say, to the movement of, of the social justice and work right. that you're doing there? Yeah, and we're working actually with a local nonprofit here, the Community Alternatives and Justice and their Community Conversations program. We're working with that group to bring this together. So it's not just the Borough State College or a local government project. It is, in fact, a community-based group. And so I think that's going to, I think that really helps us to advance the conversation to be a more inclusive conversation within the community. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like it is the, quite appropriate for the need right now. And I think this next conversation, the dissent conversation, equally difficult. So conversation number four is dissent. And Peter Block says we must invite people in a way that they can say no. If they cannot say no, they will not be able to develop a sense of agency or purpose. 
So we must start with people willing to come. Yeah, clearly that, I think that's important, but I think also once you're in the room, we have to find new ways to be able to have dissent, disagreement, if you will, with respect. I think we have, again, we veered to a point where if somebody disagrees, they get characterized and, and pushed off to the side because of the disagreement. And it's that bridging social capital again, not to keep going back to that, but we need to find ways within our communities that we can respect the fact that not everyone is going to agree. There is going to be dissent. People are going to say no. And some people that say, yes, I will come. I'll accept the invitation may come to the meeting and then have areas in the meeting or in the conversation where they find dissent. And we need to be respectful of that and be able to find new ways to have that conversation so that we can really fully explore those possibilities. And even the people that dissent, are going to bring some gifts to that conversation and we need to be able to accept those gifts and really have that kind of meaningful in-depth conversation to really begin to explore what are the possibilities of the future and how can we go forward together to make that future happen. I think that how you work with your community is also important for your staff how you want them to interact with the community. Oftentimes there, there will be, for good reasons, somebody who has to abide by constraints that are going to bring something to a conversation that sounds like dissent. You know, having to work within the organization and help people to understand maybe the codes within the codes department, shifting to a community-minded model as opposed to we have to make sure that we're enforcing. Having that ability to, to see the way you work with the community is also something that that you must practice inside the organization to understand that people are going to have different ways they see their role and maybe you could say something more articulate than i'm able to say about that i think it's a great point and i'm and i will tell you at the i'm not the best role model for that sometimes i don't do a good job of that area i'm aware of it and i work on it every day to accept the fact that sometimes people have dissent sometimes people have different ideas and and i need to be more respectful of that than i am sometimes so that's a personal issue but i think it's one of the things that is really important because i think it helps inform the culture of an organization that it's okay to do something and make a mistake and learn from the mistake and then move on to improve and do better. And I think we need to be able to do that without fear of retribution or fear of discipline and all those sorts of things. Now, there are some limits to that, obviously, within any organization, but I think it's really critical. I get a great example was last week here during the Arts Festival, where we have, for the first time in several years, we have a lot of visitors again into the community and some of the things like parking enforcement that maybe haven't been quite as active for a couple of years are out there and we need to be mindful of the fact that we have visitors in town and that we want to be welcoming to those visitors as well so while we can't just simply turn a blind eye to all of the things like parking in front of fire hydrants and certain things sometimes we need to maybe take a minute and say yeah, this guy's been here a little bit too long. Do we really need to write a ticket or whatever? And our, I think our parking enforcement staff really handled that well last week and, mm -hmm. and did a great job. And I was really proud of the work that we did as, the, as, a, as a government organization to try to be welcoming. Again, it had been two years since we'd had the arts festival. So there were some bumps along the way. We experienced a few problems and then it's amazing what you forget in two years about how you pull an organ, an event like that off. But I think over, I thought we did a really good job of that. And I think that's a, an example of where maybe the staff 
was able to say, I think we should do something this way. And we were able to do that. But as I said at the beginning, I'm not the best role model of that. Sometimes I'm too quick to speak up when somebody says, I don't like, I don't agree with that idea. So I'm still working on that one. I think that's a strength that you're able to recognize. And that is the first part of it. And I think we all have those certain areas, particularly if we have a lot of experience, we might be quick to say, this is something I know pretty well. But I do think that the managers who, that I've watched in practice with this, it can be as much as just a pause, learning to pause before you speak Mm -hmm. and thinking before those next words, so that it's not that as a manager, you're going to pull this together and the way things have to be right now, but it's the consideration that if that person can speak their point of view and it's not going to be like an immediate shutdown, it's going to be pause. Yes. Yeah, I, I talk a lot about the outcome being what we're concerned about, not how we get to the outcome, but the outcome. And then sometimes I forget that. I think that this is, as I said, we're all a work in progress. And so again, if, he, if Peter Block was starting this conversation, he likes to ask, what have you been postponing saying no to? So he's basically saying, you should not just go along because Tom Fontaine wants us to do this. You're allowed to say, I don't really feel strongly about this, so I'm not going to get in your way, but, or I don't agree with this, but I'm not going to stand in your way. Or, and having a measure of an ability to say no without stopping the group cold, <laughs> but yeah. allowing to speak it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think sometimes uh, we have both the problem of in government in general, in local government as a service, public service agency, I think sometimes we have a problem saying no. And I think sometimes we have a problem saying yes. I think sometimes it's, we always need to do a little more study or get a little more information before we make a decision to say yes or no. And I, but I think that's important. And I think the work that we do individually, we need to understand that we have the ability to say no. That's not something that we can do. Of course, we have a group of elected officials that may say, we're going to do this. And then obviously we're going to, we're going to have to do that as a staff. And that's important that we do that professionally and accept ownership of that responsibility. But in the meantime, I think there are things that we need to feel free to say no and be able to do that. And it's a good question. And it's one that I think we need to think more about. I, I personally would say that I need to think more about that. And I think all of us can think a lot more about what are the things that, that we really need to begin to think about and say, no, I'm not prepared to move ahead with that. Yes. And you said, I am not prepared to move ahead with this, which I think is a distinction from the the sense you can hear in a group, which we can't do that, which is basically speaking for everyone. And you can legitimately shift to, are you saying that you are not able to do this and what is it that holds you back or, and and let them speak to that, which might be a valid point from their particular perspective, but as opposed to say, we can't do that. And I think it's important once you come to that conversation about, no, we can't do that or something. I think the next question is, okay, given that we understand that, but let's say we are going to try to do this. How would we do it? What can make it work? What is the possibility? Yeah. Yeah. Let's pretend we can. What would that look like? (laughs) Yeah. That's interesting. Okay, and so I want to honor our time together here. There's, a, there's sure. more conversations that are important. The fifth conversation is around commitment. And I think about the life-work balance that's very important to commitment. In other words, I'm not going to be able to bring my, my enthusiasm and my strength to my work unless I also feel I have some time in my own life to, it's a balance. So we understand that. I know that you are a referee in another lifetime. 
And Peter Block has some interesting things that how important it is to play, that, that we're not just all about work and intense matters, but that we learn that's the relationship building. We also learn to play together. He says that what starts as play out in the front yard becomes competition as we go through the schooling system. So sports brings together this idea of play and competition. And so I'm wondering what you have learned from sports and how that informs your thinking about engagement? Yeah, it, it's a great question. It's one that I think is really hard to answer. I, sports is a really interesting thing and I love sports. And one of the things that I've loved about being a basketball official is that when I leave to go to a game and for the two hours that, or hour and a half that I'm on a basketball court refereeing and then getting back home in almost every case, that's time that I'm not thinking about all of the problems of the day at work. And so it's really a huge relief for me. I have a lot of people that say, why in the world would you want to be a referee? You get people calling and complaining all day long, and then you go referee a basketball game and have everybody in the stands complaining about the things. And I just think it really, it's a diversion and something that I've really enjoyed doing and has been a great release for me. The whole notion of sports is interesting because clearly there is a huge commitment to sport. If you're going to play a sport, aside from a pickup game at the Y on Saturday afternoon, you really have to make a commitment. You have to make a commitment to show up to practice. You have to make a commitment to, to invest the time that it takes to to be good at that sport i was going to use the word competitive but ultimately that's what it is it's a competition and in a perfect world and it's not always a perfect world but in a perfect world the competition is intense there's a great game people play their hearts out and one team wins and one team loses and both teams get together at the end of the game and say great game it was fun that doesn't always happen but it would be nice to think that but i really think that it is that commitment to, to be able to effectively compete. And it's not just simply some random recreational event that you go to on a Saturday afternoon. And I think that's it. whether you're referee on the court or on the football field or wherever, that's a major commitment as well, because to do that job and do it well, there's, you, you, you need to spend time. You need to understand how things develop. You need to understand the rules. You need to understand the intent of the rules and you need to consistently refresh on those things. So it's all a major commitment in life. And I think it's, it's one of the things that I personally have gotten a great deal of pleasure from. And it's really helped me, I think, to, to have that diversion that gets me away from the struggles of the day as well. I think about the discipline and I think about first from your angle that you have to be clear about your decision and that maybe gets carried over into work sometimes but usually what you mentioned yeah. earlier like you, you you have to do that in your work as a referee but on the other side of it it is in a the discipline of being a in the sport and not falling apart when the referee doesn't deliver yeah. the ruling the way you want and my father really raised us to, in my family, I have three brothers, to think about sport in this, in, in the context of life, that, that you're in these interactions and there's going to be things happening all the time that don't feel fair. And yet you have to understand that that's part of the game. Yeah, well, yeah and clearly uh, you're going to blow the whistle and make a call that one team is not going to agree with and the other team is and half the fans aren't going to agree with and half are going to think it's great. It's some of refereeing is judgment. And it's, and I will say that we're not always right. We make mistakes. I can specifically remember calling a technical foul on a team because a kid ran off the bench onto the court, which is technically a technical foul. The coach was very upset with me and said, he called me over. I reported the foul and we had a nice conversation. And he explained to me that the young man was supposed to be in the game and just lost track. And so he ran onto the court and it shouldn't have been a technical foul. And I frankly said to the coach, 
you may very well be right, but I've called the technical foul and I'm not going to take it back now. So we're both going to have to live with it. And we shook hands and moved on and everything. We Clearly he didn't agree, but we were able to resolve the problem. And I think that is part of the commitment to fairness and to be able to explain and accept when you make a mistake and go on uh, or admit when you make a mistake, not accept, but accept too. But I also think that it's it's important to be able to communicate with people because sometimes in the heat of the moment, the heat of the competition, what one person sees is not necessarily what someone else sees. And it's really important to be able to do that and move on. I think the other thing that I have found is that on, there are a lot of Monday nights when I'm sitting in council meetings that I wish I had my black and white shirt and whistle on because it should be some of those things well, a lot easier. Yeah. You just gave a perfect example, though, of a dissent off the coach. Yes. He dissented and you went through the process and then you moved on. I think that was a yeah. great example. And I think it, it relates very much to commitment to that. If you're committed and you're here, you're going to have to be able to accept. There is dissent. There is a place for dissent. And then you move on. Yeah, I agree. That was a great example. But the final conversation that, that Peter Block talks about, which I think is just has so many applications. He says that we are always working against a sense of isolation. But in general, we focus on problem solving, mandating and blaming. But to overcome feelings of isolation, we need to focus on gifts. He says we should end every gathering by thanking others and identifying the gifts that they bring. And I'm curious how do you find ways to do the gift conversation? Again, I will admit this is an area that I don't do often enough. I think it's important to recognize the gifts that people bring to their conversations. And I, I don't do this at the end of every meeting, but I do try to recognize members of our team who have done extraordinary work and sometimes just simply done what they're supposed to do and what we pay them to do, but they've done it in a graceful way, in a compassionate way, and they've really made a difference in someone's life. They've helped somebody with service. And so I do try to find ways to recognize that on an ongoing basis. We do, I think, the standard things with employees that every a lot of places do in terms of, of some semi-annual employee recognitions for years of service and specifically calling out employees who've gone above and beyond expectations. But I think it's more important to make that part of the routine. And I think that's another area that I can do better and maybe haven't done as well as I should in that area. But what we all bring as gifts, instead of, as Peter says, instead of focusing on the mandate and the problem solving, to just talk about what I can do to help solve that problem. We've a major problem that is developed and we focus so much on identifying the problem, figuring out what question we're trying to answer. And we don't take the time to think about what can I do to make this situation better or to contribute in some way to improve the quality of the conversation and the response that we're trying to make uh, to this situation? So not a lot of great examples here, but I think it's really an important question and, a, and an important thing for all of us to think about and remind each other about on an ongoing basis. Who was the person in your life that helped you to recognize your gifts? I think it's, that's a really hard question to answer because I think it's, it's, there's not one person. It's a lot of people through the years. And I have to start with my parents. They were great at encouraging me to do things and to, to help me along the way. My, my wife does that with me on an ongoing basis. I had a, the first city I ever worked in, I had a mayor who really not only contributed to recognizing gifts and encouraging me to 
to do that, but he also got out of my way and allowed me to do my job as well. And was just a really great example of somebody that I worked for that was really, really helped tremendously of building my confidence and helping me to become better. Through the years, I've had an awful lot of good friends in the city management business that I, I don't know that any would say, yeah, I sat down consciously to do this, but through the conversations we've had and the advice they've given, and whether it's been me calling and saying, I've got a real problem here, how would you handle it? Or just simply sitting around a dinner table at a meeting somewhere and having a conversation is really, I think has really helped me tremendously to learn from their experiences and understand what their gifts have been to the profession of city management and help me do my job better. There are there have been countless other people and it's hard to stop with those few, but I think those are some examples of some individuals in my life and as well as in general, the city management profession, it's really a group of people. I can only say that we just have a phenomenal profession and a phenomenal group of professionals that work in this field, whether we're talking about managers from England or Australia or New Zealand or across the country in California here, it's just a great group of people who are always willing to pick up the phone offer advice, answer questions, and provide feedback on those gifts. And that's the gift that they bring to the profession, I think. And I think we all do that. This conversation has been a real gift for me because for a long time, I have thought about how Peter Block fits into the work that I do personally. And so to me too, and as a professional municipal manager, and that you're also thinking about him has been just incredibly inspiring to me. And I think that this conversation also peels away what, what we think municipal manager does, a city manager does. And we are able to have this conversation, which I think reveals what's going on behind the scenes, the thoughtful intention that goes into community engagement. As I have been saying lately, significant engagement. How do we even think about what does significant engagement mean? And I think that the conversation that we've had today is, has allowed us to, to see what it looks like at the local government level. So I really thank you for it. I thank you. I also share your, your, it's been a gift to me. It's made me think about some things to prepare for this and to think about things that I haven't for a while. I think I mentioned this to you during a, one of our conversations a few months ago. I was on my way to Clemson, South Carolina to a town gown meeting at Clemson earlier this summer and drove through Greenville on the way from the airport to Clemson and by the convention center where I first heard Peter Block. And it just really reminded me again of all those great observations and great advice that he has provided. So this has really been a gift and really a fun conversation to have. So I appreciate it very much, Nancy. Thank you so much, Tom. And I think there'll be other opportunities for us to follow up maybe on some of the thoughts that we had today and maybe go a little deeper on some of these conversations and invite some others in to have it with us. Sure. Happy to do that. Yes, absolutely. I hope you could stay cool there. I melty. <laughs> as we speak today, but climate change is one of these problems that we need to, to figure out how we're going to deal with these, some of these conversations and these questions and what are our possibilities? Yep. That would be another great topic. Cause I think that one could be an interesting conversation with a lot of different viewpoints. <laughs> yes. Work on that. Yep. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Thank you so much. We'll be in touch soon. Care, Nancy. Thank you. Take care.